All right, so um, let me ask a question. Y'all want to study something in the Psalms, or do you want to go back to Revelation? What do you want to do? You like Psalms? All right, well, let's do something in the Psalm then. How about... Let's look at Psalm... We've already done 52, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. Let's look at Psalm number... 56. Psalm 56. Tim, how you feel? You back to fighting weight? All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Psalm chapter 56. We will read it very quickly. I'll remind you just some of the things that we're looking for as we, um, as we study through it. We'll try to find a way to maybe outline it or just structure it in some way as, as we see it. And we'll, we'll see what we get out of it. Psalm 56, it says, um, and some of your titles may be different. I, I think these titles, if I remember right, I think these titles are added. What is, does anybody have any translation other than the ESV? I'm looking at the, the more linear, and it says, silence the dove. Okay, all right. All right, and then does anybody else have a title on yours other than In God I Trust? That's right. So those are the superscriptions, and I believe the superscriptions are actually original. I want to say, and I don't want to tell you wrong tonight, I'd have to, I'd have to do my research again. I want to say the, the titles are, are added, if I remember right, but it, that may not be so. But my title says, In God I Trust. And then the superscription, or to be pretty close to the same, it's going to translate a little different in different translations, but as Melinda said... It says, to the choir master or to the chief musician, according to the dove on far off terebinths. And we don't really know for certain what, um, what that is, but most scholars agree that that's a tune. That um, Kind of like if we were to say, okay, we're going to sing this to the, to the tune of Amazing Grace. And so we would know that tune in our head, but the words may be different. And so most scholars tend to agree that, um, that that's typically what we're talking about here is that it's a musical term and, and it, it is believed to, to be just the type of uh, musical structure that they are going to sing this psalm to as they sing it. And then another thing it says, it's a mictum of David. Now we've talked about the, um, the miskills um, in the past. That's what I started this series on was... Um, looking at different psalms, and, and again, there's some, there's some things that get lost in the translation, and we don't know exactly what the Hebrew was meant by it, but we can look at what root words of, those, uh, of these particular words meant, 
And as far as the missed scales, you remember whenever we were studying those that we came to the conclusion that most of them were, uh, it meant to impart wisdom or it meant that it was a psalm that was written to teach. And so whenever we would read that psalm and we saw that it was a miscal or a miskeel, however you want to pronounce it, they understood that this was a way that, um, that they would write in poetry so that when the reader read it, the point was, I want to impart some wisdom to you. I want to teach you something in this. Well, the mictum, they believe, and again, there's some question about this, but the mictum, they believe, was a term that meant golden. It would be kind of like if we were to say, y'all remember, some of y'all probably ain't old enough to remember the Rick D's top 40s. Y'all remember those? And it was, um, it was one of those things where you had a, a list of just the best of the best. And so they believed that when you read the term in the Psalms, a mictum, that that's what that meant. It meant that this is, a, this is one that has went platinum. Uh, this is one that is golden. And so they really highly treasured these Psalms that were, that were mictums. And so this is a mictum, and the author is David. And it happened when the, Phil, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, does anybody remember anything about Gath? Who else was from Gath? That's right. Goliath was from Gath. Goliath was from the town of Gath. It was a Philistine town. And you remember, they came and stood against the Israelites. And here's the way that they would do it back then. Back then, if the kings didn't want to have to sacrifice men in their army, the kings would get together and they would say, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to bring my best, biggest and best man out you bring your biggest and best man out. They're going to battle together. And whoever wins, that's who wins today. The other ones will surrender and you will belong to us. You will be our servants from then on. That's basically what was happening when, when David um, came and Goliath had been coming out on the hillside and he'd been taunting the, the, the army of Israel and he'd been taunting King Saul. And basically what he was doing was he was saying... I'm here, bring out your best man, let me fight your best man, and then we'll decide who's going to win. Well, now you can kind of get an understanding why whenever David, who was this ruddy fellow, as they called it, um, probably, anybody remember how old they think he was? Was it 16? I think. They thought he was 16 years old. He comes out with what kind of weapon? A slingshot and a stone. And he looks at their greatest warrior, this giant Goliath of Gath, and ultimately, what does Goliath do? He laughs at him. You mean to tell me that this is your best? <laughs> you mean to tell me this is what you send out to fight me? And so, here we have a situation to where if you were to go back and read it, I think you can find it, you may have it in your Bible, but I think it's in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel chapter 21 maybe. Let me go back and find it. Sorry, I'm not more prepared for this. It's actually, yeah, in 1 Samuel 21. You remember the story, I preached on it here a while back. You remember David is running for his life from King Saul, right? He's just found out for certain from Jonathan, King Saul's son. And Jonathan came to him and said, Listen, my dad wants to kill you. you got to get out of here. 
David runs for his life, but on his way out, he stops by the tabernacle. You remember that? And he stops by and he, he gets the sword of Goliath. He stops by and he gets the showbread to eat on. And he is going on his way, running for his life as fast as he can go, but he's trying to collect some supplies. Anybody remember what happened after David left the tabernacle and Abimelech, the high priest, had gave him all the stuff? Saul came and he killed Ahimelech. He killed all the priests of Nob, the city of the priest. And so here we have David and this has just happened. And now David is running for his life. And in 1 Samuel chapter 21 verse 10, this is what happens. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Asius, the king of Gath. And the servants of Asius said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances that Saul has struck down his thousands and David has struck down his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Asius the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spit run down his beard. Then Asius said to him, said to his servants, Behold, you see that this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then in chapter 22, verse 1, Then David departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And this was where David called his rock. This is where David would go to the cave in Adullam. And he was protected in this place. It was his stronghold. It was his refuge. And when he would write the Psalms, he would write about how God was his real rock. And God was his real stronghold. But he's painting you the image of what has brought him security and safety in his life. And what has made him be, um, be able to lay down and rest as long as he was in this place. But if he wasn't in this place, he got no rest. He got no peace. And so when we read Psalm chapter 56, here's the context you want to read it in. This is taking place before he gets to the king of Gath. But the soldiers of Gath have taken him captive because they've recognized this guy looks a lot like David. Now not to mention the fact that he's also carrying the sword of Goliath. And so they don't say anything about that so it could be that enough time has passed that they don't recognize that. But they recognize some things about David and they understand that they need to take this guy captive because he is a great enemy. One that has killed thousands upon thousands and they've even sung about the thousands, the tens of thousands that this guy has killed of the Philistines. So when we read this psalm, David has been taken captive and he is in a very dark place. He, is, he don't know what, what is going to be the outcome of this and this is where we're at. So in verse 1, here's what David prays. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. 
My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So here's one thing that we see that's happening. When we read it in 1 Samuel, what was it, 21 I think is where we were at. When we read the story there, you only get a little paragraph and it seems like something that just happened very quickly, right? But that's not the way it went down. Apparently, David was captured for some time before he actually made it to Gath in front of the king. Before he actually was able to play like he was um, mentally, something was wrong with him. And he clawed at the gate and spit run down his beard. And that's how he ended up getting out of there. But he was in their captivity for some time before this happens. Because he says here, God... I need you to be gracious to me. Now, what's interesting to me in this is, or or you tell me, what's interesting to you about this so far? Is there anything that you you see or that you um, think about when you think about this whole situation? I'm going to give you a minute while I check something before I say it. Make sure I'm right. Yes. All right. Here's what's interesting to me. When I read that story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, did you notice that it said, And David rose that day and fled to the king of Gath? That's interesting to me. That when David is being attacked by his own people and he don't have anywhere to go that's safe in Israel because the king of Israel is after him, where does he go? He tries to run to the enemy's camp. That's interesting to me. Now, I'm not trying to read something into the scripture that's not there, but my question is this. Where do people usually turn when trouble comes their way? Okay. Some people turn to their friends and their family. Somebody, give me some other places people turn. Huh? Home. Okay. Okay. Like what? Give me an example. That's right. Some people, some people um, turn to the lesser of the two evils, as Bobby just said. So he thought maybe, you know, I don't have anywhere to go, so maybe at least I can go to my enemy because maybe at least he'll see that my own people have turned on me and maybe he'll take me in, right? That's kind of maybe what he was thinking. Some people turn to... The bottle. That's right. That's right. Some people turn to depression. Right? I mean, just think about some of the places. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this right here. It's interesting to me that even though David has got himself into this mess, if you will, 
Because instead of turning to where he probably should have turned, and who knows, I don't know where else that would have been, but I don't think going to the devil's camp is the place that God would have directed him to go. Right? And so, even though David has, in his own panic, in his own calamity, he has decided to go to a place for protection that has got him in a worse mess than he was in, right? Even though he has done that, look at his prayer. How does he start it out in verse 1? Be merciful. Be gracious. What does it mean when you ask God for mercy? What did you say, Chris? <laughs> I like it. God, please don't give me what I deserve. God, please, please don't, don't give me what I deserve. But instead, God, give me what I don't deserve. That's what, you remember the, the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is holding back what you deserve. You ever played the game Mercy? Y'all remember playing that? What would happen if, I, if me and Chris were playing mercy and I had his hand bent over and he was crying for mercy? But I don't have to, do I? I don't have to let go. He's crying for mercy because he can't do anything. He's powerless to stop what's taking place. The only thing he can do is say, will you please give me what I don't deserve? I agreed to play this game. I put myself in this position, but I'm asking you to hold back what I deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is, Lord, give me what I don't deserve. Give me your goodness. Give me your protection. Give me, get me out of the mess that I have got myself into. That's interesting to me. Now again, I'm not saying that that's what everybody has to pull out of that, but... It's interesting that he starts this thing out. God, be merciful to me. God, be gracious to me. In other words, I know I have went to a place and I have turned to a place that I should not have turned for protection. I know that I deserve to be captured and I deserve to be killed by them. But I'm asking you to have mercy on me, to be gracious to me. And then he appeals to him by name. He says, be gracious to me, O God. And here's why. Because man tramples on me all day long an attacker oppresses me. Apparently, you've got to try to understand and see the picture that David is painting for you here. They're taking him to the king. They've caught him before he got to the king, okay? Now, wherever they've caught him at, there's some journey to get there. They're taking him there, and every day, all day long, what are they doing to him? They are, they are oppressing him. They're, they are tormenting him. They are, um, they're trying to get information out of him. They're torturing him. Day after day, this is what's happening. He says, all day long, an attacker of some kind oppresses me in the situation that, I am, that I'm in. Verse 2 says, My enemies trample me all day long, for many attack me proudly. They're proud as they do it. 
because in their minds they've caught a top dog. Let me ask you a question. If we could have caught Saddam, uh, not Saddam, uh, what was his name? Osama bin Laden without killing him, what would our soldier have done to him on the way there? What do you think they would have done? What would you have done? <laughs> All the way there. And so what we see here is that they have called the top terrorist to the Philistine nation. The one who has killed thousands upon thousands of, uh, of them. And if I remember right, I don't want to, I can't remember if it's right or not. I think Saul, in order for David to marry his daughter, he had to go out and collect so many of the foreskins of the Philistines. Y'all remember that? And he collected way more. This, this guy has done a lot of damage to this nation, and they've got him. They've got him. And now he says, God, I need you to be gracious to me because they're proud of it. They're attacking me. But then notice here's what David says I am going to do. Here's his response to the whole situation. Now this is not when David's out of it when he writes this. David's in the thick of it right now when he's, when he's reciting this. And here's what he says. When I'm afraid, what does he do? I just put my trust in you. That's exactly right. He goes back to his faith and he uses his faith to overcome his fear. That's good note taking right there if you're taking notes. That's right. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid because what can flesh do to me? Now let me ask you this question. What can flesh do to David? That's right. Flesh can do a whole lot to him, can't you? But as far as he's concerned, in the grand scheme of things, what can flesh do to him? Not if you know the promises of God. So there again, in order for David to overcome his fear... Now, does David have every right to be afraid? And he doesn't deny it. He says, when I am afraid, right? So here David is struggling with fear. He's scared to death. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what these guys... They've got me. <laughs> they've got me. I'm on my way to the king. And when I get there, if this is what they've done to me, what do you think the king's going to do? But here's what he says. He says, when I am afraid, I just put my trust in you. I put my trust in you. So who is this you? So in verse 4, we kind of get a... Notice, what's the first word of it? In. So in other words, I put my trust in you. Who? Alright, who is God? Which God? What God? The big G God. I like it. Alright. What else do you see in that? In God, what? Whose word I praise. So here's what I wrote down if I, was, if I was taking notes on this. I put my trust in the God of the Bible. I put my trust in the God in whose word I have. 
Remember, this ain't, this ain't the God of, um, of farming or the God of um, sex or the God of the sun or the God of... They had all kind of gods that these people served around here. Here David says, I'm not putting my trust in just any God. I put my, God, my, my trust in God whose word I praise. And so here we see in this that this is the God of the Bible. And David praises the promises of God. What promise has God made to David specifically? And, and at this point, does David have any children? None. What do you think David is doing right now? At the end of the end, but, but when he thinks back on the God uh, in whose word he praises, you know why he's praising the word of God? Because God has already promised him exactly what Melinda said. God has already promised him. You're going to be the king on the throne and there will never fail to be a seed of yours on the throne forever and ever. And David believes it. And because he believes the promise of God, what happens to his fear? Notice what he says in verse, um, verse 4 again. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. And what happens to his fear? I shall not be afraid. Not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In other words, in contrast to the word of God versus what flesh says it's going to do, I'm not afraid of flesh because what can flesh do to me when God has already said this? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so David's fears leave. They leave whenever he puts his trust in the God of the Bible. When he puts his trust in God's Word and God's promises to him, his fears simply leave. All right? Now, next in verse 5 and 6, notice what we have next. We have complaints about David's enemies, and that's how I outline this. Um, complaints about David's enemies. So even though his fear is set aside, he's still praying to God. He's still asking God to be gracious to him. God, I'm putting my trust in you, but here's my complaint. And here's what we get in verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. Now what other uh, translations, what, what does another translation read there? Somebody has a different translation. Okay, They twist his words. There you go. I like that. So all day long, they, they, they twist my words. They take what I say and they make it even worse. They try, to make, they try to make my case and my cause even worse than it already is. All right? And what else? All their thoughts are against me for what? For evil. What does another translation say at the end of verse 5? Their schemes are against me for my ruin. They are twisting words so that when we get to the king, they are trying to make sure that no matter what, I'm going to die. No matter what, the king is going to kill me. They're trying to twist. And this is the way the enemy works. The enemy is always trying to twist and scheme. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul said, we're not ignorant of his devices. 
We're not ignorant of His schemes. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul said in the, in the armor of God that, um, that, that we know the schemes of the devil and that the armor protects us from his schemes and his trickery. And this is what they have here as well. All right. And then, notice what he says next in verse 6. They stir up strife. They lurk. What does it mean to lurk? They hide and they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. What are they doing? What's, what's David complaining to God that they're doing to him? They're conspiring against me. They're lying in wait. They're just trying to find a reason, any reason to kill me. Now they're already tormenting him. They're already torturing him. They're already, I mean, and, and when you read, this is why it's beautiful to get this psalm. Because when you go and you read it in 1 Samuel chapter 21, you don't get this. You don't get this. You don't know. As far as you know, they just kind of grabbed him by the arms and just took him straight away to the king. And then he had to act mad in order to get out of there. And that's the story you get. When you come to this, you see the whole picture. You see that David is in a very... Very difficult situation. One that most people, 99.9999% of the people are not walking away from this, right? And then in verse 7, he asked God a question. He's gave his complaint. Now he's asking a question. And what's his question? Huh? What does he mean there? What's he asking God? Are you going to let them get away with this? Ain't that a fair question? God, are you going to let my enemy get away with this? I mean, I belong to you. I'm yours. This is what he's doing. This is what the enemy has done. Are you going to let my enemy get away with this? And then he asks another part of the question, or, um, or he has another request in verse 7. And what is it? In wrath, God, cast down the peoples, O God. So here's what I see God do, or David doing. He's appealing to God's justice. He's appealing to God's justice. He looks at God and he says, God, you don't put up with this kind of evil. Especially not to your children. God, are you going to let them get away with this? God, in wrath, will you please come and have justice on my adversary? And there are many scriptures in the New Testament that point us to, to pray the same kind of prayer. Jesus himself told us a parable about a widow woman that was oppressed and an unjust judge, and that's exactly what he told us to do. He said, Will God not, if, if this unjust judge will avenge this widow after she cries out day and night, do you not think that God, who is your Father, will avenge you as you cry out to him day and night? Ain't that beautiful? God is going to have justice. It is going to take place. The enemy is going to suffer. Now, keep going with me. In verse 8. And what we get there 
Now David appeals to God's care for him. First off, David appeals to God's justice against the enemy. Now David appeals to God's care for him. Remember, how did he open up his prayer? What's he want God to do? Have mercy, be gracious to me. I know I've got myself in this situation, but they're your enemies and this is what they're doing to me. You are a God of justice. Are you going to let them get away with it? And now he says, God, and also don't forget how much you care for me. Look what he says down in verse 9, or in verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. What does your other translation say? All right. Donnie, what does your translation say? All right. All right. What does yours say, Chris? Verse 8. That's fine. It, 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 here's the point. You can look at different translations to get a full understanding of it, but here's what he means. God, you've kept track of all of my sorrows. That's right. Yeah. I mean, think about, think about this right here. David understands something about God's care for him. There has not been a single sorrow that God has not kept a record of. Now, ain't that beautiful? God, you have kept a count of all of my sorrows. Not only that, he goes even further than that. And what does he say next? You keep all of my tears in a bottle. <laughs> I, I, love, I love this right here. There is not a single tear that David has shed in any sorrow that God has kept a record of all of them. There's not a single tear that God has not collected every single one of them. You know why? And why does he keep a perfect record of our sorrows and our tears? Why does he keep a perfect record of everything the enemy does to us? That's right. This is beautiful when you see what David understands and how David takes comfort in this. David understands that God has kept a record. You've, he says, God, you've got a record of all of my sorrows. You got a bottle that has every tear I've ever cried in it. And then notice what he says next. Are they not in your book? You have a book. And every one of them are written down. And as Vance or Chris just said, there is coming a day, and David understands this, when justice is going to be served. And let me tell you something. When that day comes, you've never seen justice like you're going to see on that day. Because every tear that has been collected from every human being that was a child of God that has ever lived, and every sorrow from every child of God that has ever lived, every one of them in this book, they are going to be righted, and justice is going to be served on every one of them. Yeah. 
it, it ought to make you feel so much relief to be thankful that you're not in this book, but you're, you're in another book, right? All right. Now, <clears throat> let's see what he does next. In verse, um, verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. What does, God, what does David know? Now this is tough. Remember, where's David at? Is David on the other side of this situation? <laughs> I mean, where's your mind at if you're in this situation? What are you thinking? I'm done, right? This is it. I, I mean, I, I'm on my way. They're twisting my words. They're making up stories about me. They're torturing me all day long. They're lying in wait just finding a reason, just looking for me to do something that they can kill me and it be okay with their king. Unless God has mercy on me, unless God gives me His grace, what hope do I have? And so here's His appeal. God, you're a God of justice. Not only that, you know everything the enemy's doing to me. You're keeping a record of it. You've got a book of all the sorrows and all the tears. And I know this, that there is coming a day that I call on you. may not be today, but there is coming a day when I call on you and my enemies will turn back. This I know, that God is for me. Do you know that? Because if you don't know that, I'm telling you, when your day of calamity comes, you're not going to be able to be in the same kind of mindset. He says, this I know that God is for me. And then finally, he preaches to himself. And that's basically what we're seeing there. Actually, that's what you're seeing in verse 9. You're seeing David here preaching to himself. What's he, what's he preaching to himself? What's he telling himself here? God's for me. Don't give up hope. I know this. I know that God is for me. And then we keep on going down through here in verse um, 10. And which God is it that's for him? <laughs> the big G God? Uh-huh. Well, and the God of the Bible. The God of His promises. The God that has made specific promises to David. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is the first time he uses the actual covenant name of God. Every other time when you see, be gracious to me, O God, he's using Elohim. And it's just basically a generic term for God. Everybody said Elohim, whether it was to Baal or whatever God. But now he brings it down to the, to the brass tacks. And he says here in verse 10, The God that I trust is Yahweh. And it's His word that I praise. In God I trust. And because I trust in God, what, how does he end this thing? Can you imagine being in his place and finally coming to a place where you were afraid but now literally being tortured all day long, you look in the face of your enemy and you smile.
and you are not afraid. Why is he not afraid? Y'all give me the summary of it real quick. What did David do here to trust in God? What did he do through this psalm that you saw? This is what he did in order to trust in God. That's right. He remembered God's justice. He remembered God's promises. What else did he remember? All right. All right. He remembered God's care for him. He remembered God's record book. He remembered that God was his covenant God. So there are several things down through here that, that he remembered in order to make sure that his fear did not overcome his faith. Now, I'm not going to study this one with you, but it's interesting for you to see. Go with me to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm 34. What's the title? Alright, so the title is Taste and See That the Lord is Good. And what's the superscription say? So that what happened? So here's what you can, you can do. Psalm 56 is while he's captured. Psalm 34 is what he writes after God has been gracious to him and God has had mercy on him. And this, we'll read through it real quick and this will close. In verse 34, God has answered his prayer and look what he writes. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. Why? In that context, what's he talking about there? Why does his soul make its boast in the Lord? Because if it hadn't been for the Lord, what hope did David have? David was nothing. He was a nobody at this point. He was a dead man walking. That's the reason why he says at the end of verse 2, the humble are to hear about this and it ought to make them be glad that the Lord delivers those that cannot help themselves and have no hope whatsoever. And then in verse 3, here's what he appeals to the people. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And He delivered me from all of my what? Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see! That the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Remember, where did David, eventually, where did David um, immediately take his refuge in? Was it the Lord? 
Well, he was trying to get to a cave. But before he got to the cave, where was he going? That's right. And so here David says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. Come, O children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's learned how to fear the Lord, hasn't he? God showed him. You think you're going to go here for safety? <laughs> Guess what? Mm -mm. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? It's what David's trying to teach him. If that's you, then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Which was about what was about to happen to David, right? When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So what do we learn from this? How do we apply this to our life? There you go. Faith overcomes fear. How else do we apply this? That's right. What can flesh do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? I can trust and I should trust in the Lord's promises. Anybody else? What else do you learn from this and what else do you apply to your life in this? When you mess up, turn to Him. Ask Him for mercy. Ask Him for grace. Anybody else? All right. Yes, ma'am. Amen. In times of panic, just trust in Him. That's right. That's right. And what did he mean when he said taste and see? You ought to be able to look at what he has done in David's life. And you ought to be able to... And, and knowing what you know... You are to be able to see that and see what God did for him. And you are to be able to taste and see. Now, he didn't say you could eat it for yourself. Control, he's controlling the senses that we have. That's right. That's right. You know, Kevin, I never told you that. But that I, didn't knew, I, that I knew I wasn't coming home. And was I living like David? I, I don't think I, I always said that I, I had a mother and a wife at home praying said, God bring that idiot home because he knows not what he does. But you know, I, I never once left home that I knew I wasn't coming, that I would not come back. 
or that you thought that you were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was a mindset of God because I received Jesus Christ when I was 16 years old. Amen. I didn't get saved until I was older. Yeah. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes. Amen. Anybody else learn anything from it? Huh? That's right. That is important. We don't really understand how much sin hinders our relationship with God, hinders our prayers. Now, again, I'm not saying that because that's what that's where. Job's friends came in and they messed up because they just automatically assume, well, the reason why God's not hearing you is because, and that's what the whole book of Job is about. Um, but I do understand that that is true, that sin does hinder my prayers, that sin does hinder my relationship with God. And that's what David is getting at right here. He's seen it personally in his life. Now, He's not saying here that if you do good, that that's what makes you righteous with God. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that those who walk by faith and trust God and believe God, they are turning from evil. They are keeping their tongue from deceit. And they're fighting the good fight. And we need to be able to see that actively going on in our life. And if we don't, then we need to be crying out, God, be gracious to me. Because I'm walking in a path I know I don't belong in. I know I don't deserve anything from you, but this is what I know. This is what I remember. And this is what I'm appealing to. That's right. Yep. Yep. Another thing that, that, that I, I take in application here is that I can, um, and we probably would have got into it if we went to Revelation tonight because... Uh, the part of Revelation we were going to be studying talks about how God keeps all of our prayers collected before Him on the altar. And that smoke of that incense from the prayers rises before Him. And, um, and He ultimately uses the fire from those prayers for vengeance as what He brings judgment onto the earth whenever He uses all of your tears and all of your sorrows to right every wrong. And so I take, I take from this tonight that he's got a record, a book of all of my sorrows. Every tear I have that has ever dropped out of my eye for a single moment, he's got a bottle. Now again, we're, he's painting a picture of it, right? And you could actually go back and study some. They used to collect tears in, in bottle, especially of the enemies. They would collect tears and they would, they would offer them as sacrifices to the kings and stuff like that. And so there is some historical context that you could study to, to understand the image that David is trying to paint for you. But the point being is that God collects all of your tears so that when the day comes that he has vengeance... He uses those to right every wrong. And so I, I, I read that and I can't help but go, one day, one day. That's right, that's right. One day it's coming. Yes, ma'am.
Right. Mm -mm. That's right. That's right. And that's important too because you're going to see that. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be in the Psalms. You know, um, I, I plan on being there for a little while longer anyway. But um, you're going to see a common theme in that is that the psalmists always go back to remembering what they know about God to be true. They go back to His promises and they go back to His goodness and His faithfulness and His mercy and His grace. And so you're going to see a lot of that repeated. But I think it's one thing that you and I need to learn. So as, as Nick would say, things that are repeated, that's right, things that are repeated, you better listen. And so I think that you're going to see that as we continue to study the Psalms, that this is something that is repeated pretty regular. Yes, sir. Yep. Right. Yeah. And that men, uh, you know, missionaries went out and just kept spreading the gospel because of that man's faith, just trust in God, and patiently trust, uh, patiently believe that the Lord is good. Amen. Amen. Yeah. we don't know the we don't know the heartache that that song come out of until you read the story. Yeah. Amen. All right. Anybody else? All right, well, thank you all for your time and your attention. We'll um, close in a word of prayer, and you'll be dismissed. So, um, uh, Brother Ken, would you close us tonight, please?